what we did over the next three years is focus really, really hard on building up the right portfolio of properties that was going to one cash flow enough to for us to cover our primary expenses. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey everyone, Annie Dickerson here together with Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing excellent. How about you? How's the weather out there? Well, you know, summer (laughs) in the Bay Area, you never quite know if it's going to be cold or hot here. So I see I'm wearing a sweater and you're like in a tank top. So it must be a lot warmer where you are. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think we're probably approaching 90 right now. And tomorrow it's supposed to hit 108. So yeah, looking forward to the warm weather. You know, I love the warm weather. You're heading out of Portland soon, right? Heading out of Portland. Yep. We'll be leaving here on Sunday, heading up the coast to Kent, Washington, and then up to Seattle. So yeah, it's supposed to be on Sunday, 111 here in Portland as we make our way out of here. So (laughs) yeah, it's going to be a hot car ride, but that Tesla will keep you cool. (laughs) There you go. Yep. They've got air conditioning under your butt. So it keeps you nice and cool. No, I'm just kidding. I need one of those. <laughs> oh man. Well, let's uh take a moment to talk a little bit about our conversation today. It's with Daniel Johnson. He's a real estate investor. He's also a business owner and he's founder of Refocus Financial Planning, where he does, I believe he calls it fixed fee financial planning, where he does like a one-time financial plan. And what I love about his experience and his story is that he doesn't just focus on one area of financial planning where he's like, oh, I only do stocks or I do mutual funds or I sell annuities. He sort of has this broad focus, not only of traditional investments, but also of alternative investments like investing in businesses, which is a big part of what we talk about in this conversation. I didn't know anything about buying a business or very little. And we got to dig deep about his latest business purchase, which was a car wash. Yeah. So fun. Now you and I are going to go look at car washes in Oakland, right? There we go. That's right. Car washes and laundromats. That's where we're going. (laughs) That's what we took away from the show. There you go. Yeah. No, it was so cool to to tap him and really dig in because we haven't had anybody on the show where we've been able to talk about this. And it's something that I think is a viable option for somebody who is looking to step away from the W-2 world, but doesn't know where to start. If they're thinking about starting their own business, acquiring an existing business is a great way to go. I think particularly, as he had mentioned, if you have some kind of knowledge or expertise already in the industry, it could be a good way for you to go. But we deep dived and talked all about like how much you can expect to pay for a business, what average expenses could look like, what are some red flags as you're evaluating, where to even find these businesses. And it was a great conversation. Then earlier on in the show, we got to talk a little bit about his start in the real estate world. And it's fun to hear about everybody's start and how they got, especially when you start off like we did as house hackers, it's always such a great introduction into the world of real estate investing to show how somebody else can essentially help you pay down your own debts that you're responsible for, which is an awesome thing. But one thing that he did say that I thought was so cool was that there was a moment in their journey 
journey where his him and his wife basically owned this idea of being a real estate investor and, and said that this is who we are now and this is what we do and this is how we're going to make a living. And I think for a lot of people, if they have this divide between who they think they are and, and do they belong in the world of real estate investing and is it for them? And I think once you really own that as a part of like who you are, you can really step into it and find a lot of success. So I thought that was interesting that he had brought that up. Indeed. And you'll hear in Daniel's story the sort of gateway. It's almost like a house hacking was a gateway for him into mm-hmm. rental properties. And then that was a gateway into investing in alternative investments and getting into financial planning. And so for all of our listeners out there, wherever you are on your investing journey, investing in real estate syndications to create that passive income can be, for many people, a gateway into the world of alternative investments because it's a great way to dive in and sort of learn all about it. And so if you're new to that world, a great place to start is to grab a copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. Now with that, let's dive into our conversation with Daniel Johnson. Daniel, welcome to the show. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me on, Annie and Julie. Glad to be here. Now, Daniel, I know that as a real estate investor yourself and founder of Refocus Financial Planning, you are passionate about helping people grow their wealth through alternative assets like small businesses, real estate, and cryptocurrency. And that world of alternative investments is exactly where Julie and I like to play as well. So that's why we're thrilled to learn more about what you're seeing out there and what you're investing in these days and any tips and strategies you might have to share with our listeners. But first, to start, tell our listeners how you got into this world of alternative investments and financial planning in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it's a really interesting place. And most folks kind of start with just the traditional 401k and just traditional stock market investments. I was fortunate in that from the very beginning, I was always interested in real estate. And I knew early on that I wanted to own real estate. I wanted to be a landlord. And so the first opportunity I had, I was actually working full-time while in still in school, finishing my undergrad. And this was happened to line up with the time 2007, 2008, when anyone that's breathing could get a mortgage, right? I mean, some of us remember those days, there was very easy lending requirements. So I actually got a mortgage, bought a house in 2007 and did a house hack kind of before really that the whole terminology was there. But I had two of my college roommates move in with me and pay me rent. And so that was a really interesting entry point into real estate, not only because I learned some landlording skills working with my friends that are tenants, but also what happened after that with the housing crash and subsequent events. But that's how I really kind of got into it and was bitten by the bug and have continued to invest in that way since then. So, okay. I want to go back to something you said, which is I knew early on, I wanted to be a landlord. Okay. That's something like almost nobody says, right? Most people are like, I don't want to be a landlord. I want to own real estate, but I don't want to deal with any of that hassle. So tell us what it was early on. How did you find out about real estate and 
How did you know that that was something that you wanted to invest in? Yeah, I don't know. I've just always had such an interest in properties. Whenever I was young, I remember driving around and kind of wondering, I wonder who owns that property or what is that random building that was just built? Like, Why did they do that? And what's the purpose of it? And what's it going to be used for? And that sort of thing. And so I don't know. I've always been interested in real estate period. And obviously the easiest entry point into real estate is just knowing that, hey, some people rent, some people own. Those people who rent, they have to rent from someone who owns the property. So knowing that there's that two-sided transaction and being that person on the other side. And my approach has always been, I think of landlording as a service that you're providing a really good, safe place for your tenants to live. I'm not one to spare expense to cut corners on properties because I just want to make sure that somebody's proud of the place they live and that they want to continue living there. So that's just always been my approach to landlording and property management. Such a great perspective on landlording, because I think most people think of it as a hassle, like something they have to do. But if you turn it around, like you're talking about, and think about it as something you get to do, some an act of service and an opportunity mm-hmm. to really make a difference in the lives of these people who are living in your properties, I think it changes the entire equation. And so you health hacked that first place while you were in college, you brought in some of your friends and they were paying you rent. They weren't as savvy as you were because mm-hmm. they were just like, oh, we're great. We got a great place to live. We'll pay rent. No problem. Yeah. And here you were, you're like, ha ha, <laughs> you guys are paying down my mortgage. So it was working for you. So then, and what market was this in? So this was in Western North Carolina. So Asheville. Okay. Uh-huh. The market there. Nice. So, okay. So then what did you do next? Did you think, oh my gosh, this is working. I'm just going to go out and buy a whole bunch more of these these house hacks. Yeah. So what was really interesting is that at the same time or around the same time, I was dating my now wife and we got married about a year and a half later. And so the question was, do we move into this house hack or what else do we do? So what we realized is, hey, look, it's probably not going to be terribly affordable for us to live in that house hack. So we continued to rent. I brought in, replaced myself with another friend. And so had friends live in it for three of my friends live in it for the next couple of years. But what happened was we saw, of course, a lot of turbulence in the market with the price of that house probably dropped 40 to 50% over the next couple of years. And really, we ended up in a place where we didn't have any problems paying the mortgage. However, it was kind of one of those gut punches that you're like, well, do I really want to buy something else? Even though it probably was the best time in recent history to buy more. So my wife and I, we kind of just took the sidelines. We did a couple of like live-in flips where we bought a house and fixed it up and then eventually moved and sold it and that sort of thing. But we kind of took a break from real estate until about 2013. So that was the next time we kind of jumped back into it. I'm curious with every story about investors and their spouses is different, right? Sometimes they're on the same page and they're both really gung-ho about it. Other times there's like one spouse who's more resistant or is more risk averse. Since you started dating your wife, sort of when you were starting to get into this and then you guys got married and then you continued to invest in real estate, did she come from a similar background? Was she like a little girl and she was going around, who owns that (laughs) property? Or was she sort of new to it and you brought her into the fold? Yeah. So what was interesting is she was not from that type of a background. She was not terribly interested in the spreadsheets and and understanding about what would be a profitable property, what would not be. What she was very interested in was design. 
And so the way that we actually made a path forward was one property at a time. So the next property we bought was a, a single family home that had a, a garage apartment. And we eventually renovated the garage apartment and she decorated it up and we started doing Airbnb short-term rental with it. And that gave her a path that she really loved and enjoyed on the design aspect. And so even though I was probably, if you use a pool analogy, I was in like three foot water, right? Like I had done it before. I was comfortable with it. She was just down at the the glide path in where she her toes were just in the water. She wasn't terribly comfortable with it, but this allowed her to get more and more comfortable with it. And over time, as she was able to use her gifts, abilities, and skills to help to be a part of the process, she started getting more and more engaged. And to the point now she's like, well, hey, look, you know, this is kind of what we do. This is how we earn our living now is doing real estate. And she's a big part of it now. Love that pool analogy. It's like slowly bringing them in. And for all of our listeners who, if you're in a spot where you're really into this and you're trying to get your spouse on board, listen to what Daniel is saying. I think that's such a key insight is to not try to force it on them the way that you see it, but really understand their key strengths and what they might be interested in. And because real estate is so vast, there's so many different things that you can do in it. Try to figure out a way that you can sort of ease them in. So if they're interested in something like design, figure out a way that they can bring those strengths to the equation. I love that. Okay. So now let's keep going in your story. So it's 2013, you're getting back into it. And then, so you're getting back into real estate. Were you still investing in these smaller properties? And then I also want to hear how that eventually led to the creation of Refocus and how you got into financial planning. Yeah, absolutely. So in 2013, we had a little bit of moving around and that sort of thing in between 2007, 2013. We finally settled back into Asheville and that's where we bought that home that had the garage apartment with Airbnb. And beyond after that, the reason we moved back to Asheville is I received a, a position with a financial planning company in Asheville. And so that was kind of the start of my entry into financial planning. I just got my CFP, which is Certified Financial Planner Certificate. I'm starting to work for this large financial planning company. And through this period of time, that's when we started kind of taking all of our additional excess disposable income and started reinvesting back into additional real estate. And so over the next leading up till today, we kind of fast forward seven, eight years for some, we probably moved slowly. For others, we probably moved quickly. But now at this point in time, we built ourselves up to where we have about nine properties, actually rounded up to 10 properties that we own and manage, mixture of short-term rentals, long-term rentals, and nurse housing. And so actually throw on top of that, we just closed on a car wash not too long ago, which it's kind of a very different it's a real estate-esque play, but it's got a business overlay to it. So that was kind of our path forward that we just started continuing to move forward and, and reinvest. And we eventually got to the point where we felt comfortable with me taking a step away from this established financial planning company that I was an employee of and saying, hey, look, let's do something different. Let's focus more on real estate, but also have on the side the ability to help real estate investors and just folks who need financial planning assistance to establish this new type of a financial planning firm that is it's flat fee and it's not based on investments under management or anything like that. You mentioned that you felt comfortable to take a step away from your job. What does that mean to you to feel comfortable? I often have this conversation with a lot of my coaching clients as to when is the right time for me to leave and make this real estate thing my full-time side hustle 
And it's different for everybody. And I tell my story about when that point was a feeling comfortable for me. What did that look like for you? Were you at, had you replaced 50% of your income, 100%, nothing? (laughs) Like, did you have passive income set up already? What did that world, give us a picture of what that world looked like, because I think that there's a lot of people listening that they might not understand, well, when is the right time? And I think oftentimes people like over-prepare and they think they need to have 100% of their income replaced before they kind of take the leap and dabble in the waters. How much money should they have saved? Like, give us an idea of what that looked like for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's a tough place to take that step out because my wife stays home with her three children and it wasn't like we had two incomes that we could rely on one. So like you said, every situation is different. But for ours, I actually was kind of gearing up and wanting to take the leap about, let me see, it would have been in about 2018. But if I look back at 2018, we only had four properties at a time and probably did not have sufficient savings built up to make that leap to do that. And then what we did over the next three years is focus really, really hard on building up the right portfolio of properties that was going to one cash flow enough to for us to cover our primary expenses, but then also build up enough savings that we had that cushion that as we went out on our own, that we would know that if something happened like a pandemic or something like that, we would have some savings to fall back on without me having to go back and run back and find another job as a financial planner, W-2 job. And so that was the decision there. So I would say that we probably had on however you'd want to kind of categorize it, passive slash active, short terminals, more active, obviously, but we probably had about 75% our ongoing regular expenses covered and from active and passive income. And what I figured is, hey, look, we have additional real estate that we're going to be a focus on because I'll have 40 hours a week of time back. And then we'll also have the ability to, for me to kind of have a side hustle of working with folks on financial planning at, on, an, on you know, an as-needed basis. So kind of flipping the switch and saying, hey, look, I'm going to have my real estate as my side hustle and financial planning as my main to saying, hey, look, I can do financial planning on the side and I can help people and do be a really great service to them, but then I can be more active with my real estate. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you almost also, though, had to take a little bit of a risk on yourself a little bit, right? As you journey out into the world of entrepreneurship, you had to really ask yourself, do I think that I can make it in this world? I mean, you know, on my own in the financial planning space, you did have 75% of your income covered, but it sounds like the savings piece of it wasn't there. So God forbid something crazy happens could put you in a situation. Um, And I think that's what I've found is when I made the leap, I had to stand up and look at myself in the mirror and really ask myself if I believed and what I was doing, and whether or not I believed this thing was going to take off or not. And it's such a, that's the world of entrepreneurship. And that's the fun thing that you get to kind of take a risk on yourself. It's kind of adult play is the way I see it. (laughs) But that's awesome. So you had 75% of your income covered through four rental properties. Some of them were short term rentals, which I'm assuming because it was the active part that those were bringing in more money than the passive or just like the regular rentals. Is that right? Yes. As of the time that jumped off, I had about nine rental properties. Okay. That was the, the four. The four was about three years ago. The next three years, we built up an extra number of units and some of them are short-term rentals. And so obviously the interesting thing about that is we were paying cleaners and that sort of thing to turn over units. 
But we knew that we could immediately pick up $700 to $1,000 a month just by cleaning the units ourselves where we didn't have the time to do that. So we just kind of took a really hard look at our numbers and just figured out, would we be able to at least tread water? And for somebody who likes to grow, 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 it's hard to think in the mindset of, I'm going to have to tread water for a little bit before I can kind of start growing again. But that was a mindset that I had to enter with and say, worst case scenario, we can tread water with the income that we have coming in from our properties. Did you or your wife give yourself a time frame like, hey, if this doesn't work out in six months or like a year, like, sorry, Daniel, you got to go back to work. What did that look like? Yeah. So we kind of did or do have a time frame that says, hey, look, if this is not continue to work well for us, whether it be just how it works financially or emotionally and whether working from home most of the time is good for me or whatever the case is or for us and said, hey, look, we're not... One of the most interesting things I've ever heard anyone say is that as an entrepreneur, somebody starting a a business, the worst case scenario is that you have to go and take a job with the W-2 and you have to go and earn income just like everyone or most everyone else does. (laughs) And so like that's the worst case scenario is that I have to go and find another financial planning company to go and work for, and they're going to pay me to do that. And that's pretty good worst case scenario. We'll get back to our conversation with Daniel in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now back to our chat with Daniel Johnson. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes like the world we live in, our worst case scenario is getting a job. 
It's like, right. God forbid. But I right. totally looked at it the same way. It was like, if worse comes to worse, husband can go back, I can go back and we'll survive and thrive still as we had before and probably get back to where we were. But I love that. I want to transition a little bit because this is an aspect of investing that we haven't had a chance to really talk about on the show. And it is around buying businesses. And I think it's such a great way to create another passive income stream if you can find an opportunity where it's like an absentee owner type of situation. So we've never talked about it on the show. I don't know how educated our audience is around this topic. Tell us about, first of all, like, why did you even think about buying a business? And then I want to dig in a little bit more to how do you go about evaluating it from a cash flow standpoint and a time frame standpoint or time investment standpoint and then industries that's always mm-hmm. fascinating i've always been like one day i'm going to own a pizza shop like totally because <laughs> margins on pizzas are like huge i don't know anything about car wash so I want to talk a little bit about that but but t- start from the beginning how did you even start to think about buying businesses as an investment yeah i mean i first started actually evaluating financial planning companies that were for sale and saying, hey, look, there's aging financial planners that are looking to retire. And and that's how it started for me was looking at an existing skill set that I had and trying to parlay that and figure out whether that would be a good strategy moving forward. And it is, I mean, I would say a lot of folks is a good path to take, especially if you have an area of expertise around a particular business that's for sale. And on a broader scale, it's kind of called entrepreneurship through acquisition. And a lot of people are just really not very aware of the lending programs that are available. So the SBA is the Small Business Administration, and they they actually are kind of just like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. They're a backstop lender, more or less. They guarantee loans that banks make. And you can get very, very favorable interest rates, very favorable repayment terms. And so as I was looking at businesses, I kind of looked at a couple of different market segments. I looked at laundromats. I looked at car washes. I looked at service businesses like landscaping companies and HVAC businesses, plumbing companies, that sort of thing. The reason I like those is one, you kind of have more recurring revenue. As long as you don't screw something up and make somebody or just get terrible Yelp reviews or whatever the case is, there's probably going to be customers calling you continually for either recurring service or they're just going to be coming back. And so I really like the laundromat piece of it. That was kind of a really interesting one because, and really what it came back to me, it was the real estate combined with the business itself. And that's why I landed on on a car wash is that I own the land itself, which in the long run will be valuable. And then I also own the business that sits on top of the land. And that is, you know, is also quite profitable. But kind of a rule of thumb is for when you're valuing businesses, small businesses typically will sell for between two and a half to five times what you would call EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, amortization, and depreciation, or seller discretionary earnings. If it's a small enough business, just whatever the seller is kind of taking out of the business. And so whenever you think about that, if a business is making $100,000 a year to the seller, and you can buy that for $300,000 or $350,000, and the SBA is actually going to give you a loan that's amortized over 10 years, you might have a $30,000 annual note, but you're going to make $100,000 a year. That's $70,000 of the delta between that 
of course, you're going to have to be active and involved in running the business. But a lot of people, whenever you look at it in comparison to real estate, the values are so, so much better. Of course, there's just like this additional component and layer of running the business itself. Right. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Is the car wash running at absentee or do you have somebody on site or what does the time component look like? Because I think a lot of the folks who listen to the show are people who are probably pretty busy and don't have the time. Is this an asset that they should look into or an investment opportunity they should look into? Or what are your thoughts on that for people who are pretty busy? Yeah, I would say in general, at least with car washes, you probably need to be fairly active in the business just because quality can go down. And over time, you'll see your customer base decline. They'll find another place to meet that demand. However, I'm personally what I would call semi-absentee. It's not located in the same area that I live. However, it's a two-hour drive. I can be boots on the ground within two hours. There's an on-site manager that's been working there for over four years now and has kind of runs most everything, 95% of everything he attends to. He goes to the site every day. And there's a couple of different places in the car wash sphere. You have like the full service, which are those you drive up and you they're going to spray your car down and you go through this big tunnel and you can get your car cleaned out completely. And then you've got everything to like the self-service bays that we all know that you do everything yourself and there's nobody there. This is actually somewhat in the middle of that. It's what we call in-bay automatics. You drive up, you pay, you drive into this little bay and you park and there's an automatic car wash that washes it. So this is an in-bay automatic, which still doesn't require people to be there, but it does need a little bit more boots on the ground to work to make sure the site's clean and that all the equipment's working. So, so when you say that you need to be active... So boots on the ground, make sure everything's working. Is that not something that somebody else could do? Or what is it exactly that you would need to do as the owner to really make sure that things are running well? Is it being a friendly face or making sure that things are getting done in addition to making sure that things aren't breaking down? Or what is it exactly when you do go on site? What is it exactly that you're doing? Yeah. So it is one, you're exactly right. Making sure that all the customers needs are being met. If the machinery doesn't work for some reason, you need to be back in touch with them so you can give them a credit to come back and wash their car. So, and this is where the different models make a big difference, where if you have an on-site manager and there's four or five employees, naturally you're going to need to be more involved in the business. Where I'm able to outsource most of everything to this one, this a manager that's on-site, he goes by this the car wash every morning, blows off all the leaves, make sure it's all clean and nice and he checks to make sure all the machinery is working and then he leaves. So he's probably there for 45 minutes to an hour every morning, just making sure everything's good and ready to go for the day. And so kind of this idea that, yes, somebody could do this themselves. They could be actively involved. The car wash is on their way to their full-time job. They can leave 30 minutes early, stop by, make sure everything's working, clean everything up. And then not have to worry about it for the rest of the day, most likely. And so you don't have to pay and outsource that if you're local and that sort of thing. But that's where you do have to be active. It's not like you can just like a rental property where you check in with your tenant every three months to make sure everything's still good. You got to be on top of things. Mm -hmm. How much do you need to know about for somebody who's like, 
Okay. I've never run a car wash before. I've been through a car wash. <laughs> I can imagine what you're talking about with the automatic in bay thing, but don't know anything about that. Don't know anything about running payroll. I've only been an employee before. Like, How much of that did you sort of research and learn on your own before buying a business? And how much of that does the former owner sort of teach you or hand off to you? That's a really good question. I would say to anybody that's looking to buy any kind of a business, you got to do a deep dive. It doesn't matter what it is. You've got to do a deep dive and make sure you understand all the risks associated with the business, understand why the seller's selling, understand what's happening in the particular industry that you're going to buy a business in. Some people are fortunate they're buying a business in an industry they already work in or know. But if you're going completely outside, understand what are the new technological changes that are happening in that world. Most times the sellers are going to have a transition period. They're going to say, look, we're here and available and we'll do trainings with you and that sort of thing. I just did a deep dive on understanding how the car wash business works. And the good thing is a lot of times there's vendors that you're going to work with regardless of the business that They might be a supplier. In my case, there's a chemical and equipment supplier that I work very closely with. It's in their best interest to have partners that are running really good car washes because one, they're going to sell more chemicals. And two, they're going to have service contracts on the equipment and it's not going to go. It's just going to help them have a more profitable business as well. So you're just going to need to look and find who those partnerships are and how they play into it. And whether they're going to be good partners going forward? And can you lean on them for advice, information, expertise? What do expenses generally look at when you're looking at historical financial numbers in your due diligence process? Generally speaking, I know it's probably going to vary from industry to industry or not. I don't know. But what do expenses typically look like? Like when we look at multifamily deals, it's generally 45 to 50% of the overall income goes to expenses. That's just a, a number for us to look at. Now, if someone was out there looking at a business, what should they expect? And it's interesting because you kind of gave us some of the other numbers in terms of the debt payments. So fill in that last piece of so someone who's listening to like, if you bought it 100000 and the numbers and paid yeah. 300000 100000 income, what are the expenses typically look like? Yeah. So it's definitely going to be business dependent. You, have, you certainly have businesses that are very low gross margins to where you might have a million dollars of income of revenue, but I'm kind of thinking like maybe e-commerce businesses that have really high cost of goods sold. Basically, call it 70% of your revenue is going to go right out the door for your cost of goods sold. However, on the bottom line, you may not have a lot of expenses that you have to pay out to other people. Maybe it's a very, it's a hands-off business that just runs on its own. And so once you pay that cost of goods sold at the top, below, there's not a lot of expenses. So you end up with margins of 25% or so. I would say in general, for most businesses, you're going to be looking at seeing anywhere from on the low end, maybe 20% total margins to anywhere as high as 40 to 45% margins. That's based on total revenues, of course, and how much is going to kind of flow through to you as the owner of the business. Mm -hmm. What are some red flags? If you're looking to buy a business, what are some red flags to kind of watch out for if somebody's evaluating making a purchase? Anything in particular? Yeah. So one of the biggest red flags that I know of is a lot of times people are selling what they're going to label as a turnaround business. Like there's so much opportunity here. There's just tons of areas of place to improve this business. And the business has been declining for the last five years. And 
And a lot of times these turnaround businesses, there's a reason that the owner has not turned it around. Sometimes it's just complete mismanagement and they're not a good business owner. However, a lot of times a turnaround business for a reason, and it's whether it be just changes in the market, maybe other competition, and it might be really, really hard to fix a business. So whenever you see revenues declining over a long period of time or profitability declining over a really long period of time, it's a big red flag. Now, if you see something that an owner has just has gotten really comfortable with their income, and they're like, they're not really growing the business anymore. They might be 60 years old and they're like, you know what? I'd rather just go hang out at my beach house. And there's a really good reason why revenues are either stagnant or possibly declining. That's not a red flag. That is somebody who's just not wanting to squeeze every last bit of juice out of the lemon. And so they're just more passive in the way that they're running the business. And if you were to be active with it, you can increase revenues, increase profitability. So just because revenues are declining or profitability is declining is not necessarily right off bad thing, but you definitely need to dive in deeper to make sure that there's not a big problem beneath the surface. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Such great advice. I think anyone who's listening who's not in the business of buying businesses, you wouldn't know, right? You would look at something like this and you would oftentimes take the broker's word for it mm-hmm. and think that there's lots of opportunities. So that's helpful. How do you go about finding these businesses? Because I've heard uh, we were listening to Tony Robbins and we listened to Keith Cunningham talking about this, buying businesses. And he was saying, stay away from brokers, never work with brokers. They're sharks. They're like the worst. So if somebody's out there looking to buy a business, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? If it's not working through a broker. Yeah. I mean, so there's obviously the biggest marketplace, just like the MLS is is a website called BizBuySell. And that's where all the business brokers go and put their listings. It's kind of like that centralized database for that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are individual sellers who will list their business there as well. But one of the best ways, I mean, for people who are in real estate, they understand this. It's just outreach. Just like wholesalers will send letters and will send cold emails to people that own homes. You do the same thing with businesses. If you know some areas that you would like to work in, just do a Google search for all the laundromats in Cleveland, Ohio. And if that's what you want to do, then you go visit them and see who's running the laundromat that there and, and ask to talk to the owner. And actually businesses are even easier to get to the owner than real estate because real estate, mm-hmm. you've got things hidden behind LLCs and you've got redirected mail. And, and so it's really hard to get to owners with in real estate. It's actually fairly easy to get to an owner of businesses because you can either go to where the location <laughs> is and just ask to talk to the owner, or right. you can write a letter or write emails, whatever the case is. So, Yeah. Annie, you want to go buy a laundromat out in Oakland? Yeah. Let, let's go. I'm going to go right now. <laughs> laundromats are another one I always looked at. I was like, this has got to be great. The only thing with laundromats or anything like that that scares me similar to car washes and would love to hear your opinion on this is the machinery, right? Because that's essentially what you're buying. And yeah. if you're buying like really outdated machinery, then you could end up having to you paid for a bunch of old machinery or things. So how do you go about evaluating that piece of it, either in a laundromat or even in a car wash facility? What does that look like? Yeah. And so that's an item that as you're looking at and negotiating a business, you're going to want to, once again, go back and find who the suppliers, the distributors of the laundromat equipment are. And you're going to want to bring them in, whether you pay them or not pay them. They may ask for a consulting fee or something like that, but have them come in, evaluate all of the current equipment 
and figure out what's the life look like on these. Because you're right. If the car wash is down, if one of the bays is down for a Saturday, that's generally going to, you might make $700 on a, a particular Saturday. If you go through a whole weekend and have your equipment down, that's going to cost you money on the top line, which also costs you money on the bottom line. So the same thing goes with machines and they're always going to break at the worst possible time, right? Because (laughs) when do people use these things? It's probably on weekends. That's when people have the time off that they're going to use laundromat equipment. And so you want to make sure you have really good equipment. The great thing is on all these things, if you find a good distributor, you can actually a lot of times build it into your purchase price. If you're getting an SBA loan, you can build that into your purchase, a replacement of these pieces of equipment. And your customers are going to really, really appreciate that when they come in. And this is the same for any business. You need to look at it from a strategic standpoint to say, what did the customers want and how they want their services delivered or whatever it is that you're providing to them? And can I make their experience better? And if I can, then chances are they can be willing to pay me more money for that better experience, and which is also going to increase my margins, which that will allow me to pay for the upfit on this equipment and to replace all the equipment that is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's such a great question is, can I make this experience better for the customers? Because if you feel like you can, that's the value add right there. That's like the value that you're going to bring to the table. And you're essentially going to make your own dollars that way by adding more value. It's like you would do if it was your own business and you're constantly looking to evolve and grow is how we're all, Annie and I are always asking the question, how can we improve? How can we add more value for our investors, our coaching clients? And so asking that question, even on the onset of purchasing, looking at acquiring something like this, like a business is a great way to evaluate. Because if you can't see the way that you're going to make the experience better, I don't know that you're going to be able to really make the ROI back on what you have. You'll likely maybe be able to maintain it. But obviously, if you can grow and scale it, that would be the ultimate goal. Absolutely. So I love, 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 love this conversation. So awesome to have somebody on the show to be able to talk to about all of this. So I love it. But right now we're going to move into our life and money show spotlight round. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that you can control in life. There's a lot of things you can't control in life. And and as I think about my family, one of the things that I can control, I can't control how my kids are going to turn out. I can have influence on their life. And so one thing I try to do every single day, if I'm home, if I'm in town, then I just try to be there with them in the evenings to be able to have that bedtime routine, tuck them in, let them know that I love them and that I'm here for them. And so that's just kind of a a small intentional thing, but it's something that I try to do every single night that I I can. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that I, we do these Sunday night meetings with my family and my thing for the last couple of months has been to be more present in the home. And it means having, I'm thinking about implementing this, but getting like a little box where we walk in the house in the evenings and we put our phones in the box and nobody touches them because that seems to be a big distraction for my husband Mm -hmm. and I between Slack messages and emails and all these kinds of things. And so it gets distracting. And so being intentional about being present or saying, no, if there's anything, if there's one thing I'm going to do, it's going to be home at night to be with my kids and put them down. So 100% agree with that. Love it. All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now? Yes. As a financial person, I live in spreadsheets. I just love it so much. And so one thing that I've found, I'll kind of 
build off of two things because it's they're both spreadsheet related. But number one, what I've done since 2013 or so is done a monthly net worth tracking that just allows me to see, look back at where we've been and where we're going and where we are currently. That helps us to kind of understand and see those different points in time. And I can actually review back and say, oh yeah, remember this is when this particular thing happened. And man, that was devastating. That was hard, but we got through it, see where we are now. So the other thing that I'll plug is there's a kind of a piece of software called Tiller, and it is a spreadsheet, automatic spreadsheet tracking software. And so it uses, like it pulls in all of your bank information and it uses those bank connections and it pulls it directly into a Google sheet but then you're also able to manipulate it behind the scenes because it's just like any other information in a Google sheet. You can do formulas off of it and you can kind of build off of that spreadsheet. So that's a really cool, I guess, money hack. Is it T-I-L-L-E-R, Tiller? Yep. Yep. Tiller. Okay, cool. I think it's Tiller HQ is the website. I think TillerHQ.com. Okay, cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I still have my budget that I had from when my daughter was first born, which was like nine and a half years ago. And Mm -hmm. it's so cool to look back on that because I was like, wow, how did we exist on that? Because now I have three kids and they're getting bigger and they eat a ton. But I think like our grocery budget was like 500 bucks a month. And now it's like four (laughs) times that. It's just nuts. I'm like, oh my God, how did we survive on that? But it is so cool. It's fun to look back on that. All right. Last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? Yeah. So I try to live very intentionally in everything that I do. And one of those things is just being there for other folks. And so especially on the financial planning side, where I can help folks in general and whether it be compensated or not compensated. So I just love being that person that anyone can feel comfortable just coming to and asking random questions. And some people would call like pro bono or whatever, but just being that person that can help others figure out complex problems or easy problems. They just need that second set of eyes or just the listening ear to help them figure out a problem they're going through in the financial side. So, you know, just trying to kind of put my little mark on the world and help people along the way. Oh man, the world definitely needs more of those people you can just trust and go to no matter what. So I know our listeners are going to want to follow up with you, Daniel, and learn more about all that you're doing. So tell them, just give them real quick, a little insight into how you do financial planning and then tell them where they can go to connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I said earlier, fee-only financial planning is really important to me. That really means that you're a fiduciary to your clients, that you're not selling any products, that you're just on the same side of the table as them. And so a little subset of fee-only financial planning is kind of fixed fee or one-time fees. And that's where you kind of engage on a one-time basis. That doesn't mean that you don't ever talk to the person, the financial planner again. It just means that you engage and get a financial plan. And then you follow up as needed along the way, kind of like an hourly basis. Kind of what you'd expect from an attorney or CPA where you engage them for one particular reason. And then as you need additional help along the way, you're able to pay them on an hourly basis. So that's the way that I engage with my clients for the most part. Best place to find me is refocusfp.com. So that's just refocus and then FP is financialplanning.com. Awesome. Well, we'll have that link for our listeners in the show notes. Daniel Johnson, real estate investor, business owner, and founder of Refocus Financial Planning. Daniel, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom with us and our listeners today. Thank you, Annie and Julie. It's great to be here with you all. 
You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.